First of all, I'd love to know the difference. You were in the House before you were in the Senate. No, my dad was. Uh, My dad was at the House. I never was. Um, The Senate that you came into in 1967, how did that differ from the Senate, say, that you left while you were in the Senate today? You know, honestly, I've avoided answering that question. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. One, because uh, I try not to second guess those who followed me. Uh, the other is, in all fairness, you do not know the Senate unless you're there. And even though I was then out only a brief time when you speak of, uh, you just don't know. You could lose it in a matter of weeks or months, the real touch, the real understanding of what the Senate's like. So I avoid trying to do that. I acknowledge that it would appear from outside that things are tougher now than they were and more personal, more confrontational. But I can't say that because I'm not there. Well, then describe the Senate that, that, you, that you walked into. Yeah. In well, the Senate I walked into in 1967 was still a Senate populated in large measure by the the Grand Earls and Dukes, you know, we had Dirksen, you had Mansfield, you had uh, uh, so many of the ones who had gone before and made such a mark for themselves, Fulbright, uh, in, in so many ways. And I approached the matter as the youngest member of the Senate at that time and the second most junior person in the Senate. Mark Hatfield, by the way, was number 100, I was set, and I was uh, 99, and the reason was Mark stayed back for two days to to complete his term as governor, so I jumped him by one one term. (laughs) Until this day, we refer to each other as 99 and 100, but uh, I, I stood in awe of these people who've been there so long, and uh, in looking back on it, honestly, I must tell you that that has a retarding effect on a new senator's ability to jump into the mainstream. I think that's probably less so now, but it was certainly so then, and I was pretty reverential and respectful. And I remember when I made, if I may, I remember when I made my maiden speech on the floor of the Senate, which all freshmen are destined to do, that I went there fully prepared, excessively prepared, carefully prepared, and uh, not a soul on the floor except uh, one Democrat and my father-in-law, Senator Dirksen, who was Republican leader, and he was there out of curiosity, I think. But I spoke for 40 minutes. And when I finished and sat down, (laughs) Dirksen came over and sat down beside me in his careful and methodical and deliberate way. There's that wonderful resident voice as Howard. Perhaps in the future you should guard against speaking more clearly than you think. (laughs) That was my introduction into the Senate. That was the hazing. That was the uh, uh, of new members in the Senate. Now, of course, Bob Dole comes along just a couple of years later. Not much later. That's right. Did, did you sort of um, did the younger members look out for the still younger members? 
I mean, or not, not how really. are, <laughs> not, not, not really. How how are they brought into the fold? Yeah, well, uh, number one, Doe was not outside the fold. We all knew who Doe was, and uh, and and many were surprised that he was elected. I was pleased that he was elected and got acquainted with him first off, and uh, and we uh, we established an early and pretty warm friendship from the beginning. Uh, but uh, no, the older members, it was more like a sophomore freshman relationship than anything else. You recall that sophomores were full of themselves having gone through the freshman year, and that's sort of the way it was. But uh, the Senate is a, essentially a homogenous group. And notwithstanding seniority or age or prestige, it isn't very long before everybody is swimming in the same stream. And almost everybody had a different view of almost everything. But they developed an early, in my time at least, it seems to me, they developed an early understanding that we're part of this group, we're part of the Senate, and that's something very special. We don't really understand what, but we know it is. And uh, that continued, I think, for, well, it continued until I left, actually. I'm not sure it's so now. But once again, I'm not there, and I can't say. But you're saying that there's a real kind of institutional loyalty to the Senate as as a body? Almost. It's not loyalty as such, but it's a recognition uh, of, uh, it's not a family relationship, but but a, a commonality of interests and uh, and and whatnot. But uh, uh, there's very little of this protecting your younger brother. <laughs> now the Republican caucus was very different, it's certainly right. in 1967, 68, 69. It I certainly mean, was. You That's had right. a significant number of moderate and even liberal senators. That's right. Um, how did, how did that work? I mean, how did it worked very well. I did, it never dawned on me that it would not be that way. And when I got there, I was uh, not surprised to find that there were a very significant number of liberal senators, I would call, and an even greater number of moderates or center-of-the-road senators. And I would say, I haven't done a count, but I'd say that when I went there, the two, that is the liberal and the centerist, Republican senators were probably in the majority. Uh, but that gradually eroded and it began to go away in spades in subsequent elections. And by the time I left, you know, the moderate Republicans were almost a vanishing breed. But uh, that's not going to stay. That's not going to be the way it is. If the two-party system survives, as I think it will, you're going to see a resurgence of this complex of different points of view, and and uh, and I, I think that's good. When Dole arrived, um, did he have rough edges? I mean, was he? Uh, I mean, one senses that he was someone who was very much, you know, a man of his, of his, of his, of his place. Uh, of his culture uh, of Western Kansas, very conservative House voting record. I mean, and how does that, over time, evolve in in the Senate? 
Well, you make an interesting point. Uh, when Dole arrived, he had a reputation. His reputation would be very tough, very Republican, uh, and I guess very conservative, although I don't recall that that was one of the hallmarks of his early, early career in the Senate. And that began to wane. He began to establish friendships and relationships in the Senate, and all those things, that previous image, uh, began to be subsumed by uh, his newer relationships with members. Uh, he fit in. He didn't have any trouble fitting into the group. And uh, he did it very easily and very effectively. At some point in this interview, I want to tell you a true story about uh, the Republicans gaining control of the Senate. And uh, that was in 80, 1980. Right. And I was minority leader, about to be majority leader, and we were all full of enthusiasm. And uh, late at night, as the results came in, I called Bob, who was in Kansas. I don't remember where in Kansas, but he was. I said, Bob, just think. We've got the majority. You're going to be chairman of the finance committee. And Dole thought for a minute and said, well, who's going to tell Russell Long? <laughs> and there were days when I thought, nobody told Russell Long. But Bob moved right into the role of chairman of one of the prime committees of the Senate and did so with ease and did so effectively. Well, let me ask you, because that does raise this question. I mean, I've heard him talk about the difference between when you're in the minority, you, you can sort of govern by press release. That's right. You know, and then all of a sudden you realize you're responsible. That's right. you got to govern. And, and, and you really are. It's also, for someone like him or anyone, I suppose, an opportunity to disprove the doubters and to prove what you're capable of doing. It is. It, it's, it's really a, a remarkable transformation. And Republicans had a big problem with that in the Senate because they hadn't been in the majority since 1954 or 56. There was not a single person in the Republican caucus in the Senate who'd ever been a committee chairman at that time, except Strom Thurmond, who was a Democrat at the time. And uh, so it was a brand new experience, a learning experience. There's a high level of cooperation between members. But the sudden realization that not only are we in the majority, but we're responsible for the agenda, the timing. We can focus on what the country, at least the Senate, will be concerned about, and just as important, what they won't, what we're not going to do. And that's a, that's, a, that's a big issue, a big deal. And uh, for a while they said, well, the president will do that. But clearly, after a little while, a matter of weeks, it was clear that the Republican Senate, the majority in the Senate, had, if not an equal role with the president, even a due president, but a significant role in setting the national agenda. I remember in, in 60, I mean, in, uh, uh, at the time we first gained the majority, 81, even in 82, that... Uh, I think that things were different. We we thought of ourselves as equal partners with the White House. 
And uh, we asserted those views. And we would uh, visit with the president, the leadership would, and, uh, and we would invite the vice president up to policy luncheons on Tuesday. And maybe it's just the, maybe it's just the nostalgia of retrospection, but it seems to me that there was a better understanding of the interrelationship between those two branches at that time than had existed for a long time, maybe ever. And it worked very, very well, but it had a sobering effect on Republicans in the majority because they suddenly realized this is our game. We, 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 we get to run the show and we have to decide what to do or what not to do, and uh, we're gonna be responsible for it. Now what you say though suggests that that kind of relationship could only have worked because you had a president who was willing to buy into that kind of That's also true. That's right. It, and maybe it would not have worked with anybody except Ronald Reagan. What was it about Reagan that made it work? I don't know, except that uh, he never looked down on the Congress. He never ignored the Senate. He was always willing, and, and it seemed to be anxious to hear what they had to say. And uh, it, it was a remarkable relationship. And, and, and the Republican leadership, uh, and Dole was, as chairman of the Finance Committee, involved in these things. Uh, Ted Stevens, me, Dole, one or two other, Hatfield, would meet regularly at the White House at the president's invitation. And uh, we'd talk frankly about... Uh, the agenda, and I also seem to recall that the candor between the congressional types and the White House was remarkable, and I wonder if that's still so. But it certainly was so with Reagan, and it may be that Reagan's personality made that possible or practical. Well, for example, clearly not everyone agreed on the original tax cut, budget cut, Package. I mean, that was viewed by. I mean, Bob Dole himself was not not a supply side. And you're you're a kindly person for not recalling that when we went to the White House, the president outlined his plan, his budget. I unwisely went outside and was asked about it and said to the press, to the TV cameras, "Well, we hear it, we understand it, we're going to support it, but it's a riverboat gamble." And I caught all sorts of hell about that. <laughs> but the truth better is it was a riverboat gamble, yes. and the truth better is it worked. <laughs> but uh, it was, it's, it's near the top of the list of things I should never have said. <laughs> but I have a hunch Dole agreed with you. No, I know he agreed with me. As a matter of fact, we talked about it, not before, but afterwards, and we certainly did agree with it. Yeah. And I guess in all fairness, I have to say that a good part of my evaluation of that message was based on what Dole and I had talked about. But uh, he, was a, he was an important, influential person, not only in the Senate, but to me, because he, there's one other thing you should know, and I don't know where it still happens or not. Uh, I had a meeting we call the Committee of Chairmen in the Leader's Office, that I, over which I presided. All the chairmen of the standing committees came. And then we invited one freshman at each meeting who hopefully just sat there, 
But anyway, uh, that was an extraordinarily important thing to me because it was an opportunity for chairmen to say what they had on their plate, what they wanted to do, and to bid, in effect, for time on the Senate schedule. But that's where I got insights and uh, what was going on and what might go on. And that's where I first came to have such a high regard for Bob Dole's ability as chairman of that committee. His, 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 his analysis was good, but maybe even just as important, his presentation was lucid and prompt, and it worked out well. I was going to say, what qualities made Dole a successful chairman of finance? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I was not a member of finance except as an ex officio member. But it's undeniably so that personality has a lot to do with the success or failure of a senator and certainly of a committee chairman. And Dole, from the very beginning, was a highly successful chairman, not only in administering the staff and providing for the housekeeping details of the committee, and also in terms of deciding on the agenda of the Senate, of the Finance Committee, but uh, he was, he, the people respected his point of view. Not everyone agreed with his point of view, but they respected it, and I continue to. The 81 tax cuts and budget cuts right. were, I mean, not that they were easy, but relatively easy. I imagine easier to pass than the subsequent non-tax increase tax increases. That's I mean, right. TEFRA, especially in, in 1982, where you basically try to take the ornaments off the Christmas tree. <laughs> how, 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 did that, how did that happen? And how did the White House uh, feel about uh, taking a step back? Well, you know, by that time, uh, a little of the luster had gone out of the new Republican leadership, the majority of the Senate. And they were flexing their muscles here and there, and the White House was a little less reluctant to join issue with them. And another way of, long way of saying that uh, the potential for controversy between the House, the White House, and the Senate uh, was greater. And the willingness to disagree with the president or with the administration was a little greater. But uh, even so, uh, it, it was not a. It was not a country. It was not a hostile relationship. And the fact that they would talk, that the White House and their representatives, and the Senate and our representatives, uh, would discuss these matters, even with great enthusiasm, sometimes, uh, helped uh, reduce the prospects of great controversy within the House and Senate. Let me ask you, because one of the things that we're trying to get at um, on one level is what is it that Dole did behind the scenes that made him Dole? Um, I've never really seen it <laughs> spelled out. you know. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there's this whole question of institutionally, what are the tools at the disposal of a majority leader to, to get the desired result. Richard, the majority leader is not a statutory position. 
It is certainly not a constitutional position. It is a device created by the Senate itself to bring orderliness uh, and dispatch to the uh, operations of that body. It had to be. And I'm told that early on, before the majority leader was so designated, that the chairman of the Finance Committee or the chairman of the Appropriations Committee did that. But in any event, by now, the uh, majority leader, whether Republican or Democrat, has taken on special and unique opportunities and responsibilities. But the power of the majority leader resides in only two things, really. One is the tradition, the precedent, that in the case more than one senator is seeking recognition on the floor, the chair is obligated to first recognize the leader. It doesn't sound like much, but my friend, it is a lot. Because it means that uh, you get a chance to speak first. It means you have a chance, if everything else fails, to adjourn or to have a quorum call and try to reason with these people. But that's a powerful thing. The other is purely by example. I guess it goes back to the human condition that everybody has to lead. Everybody has to have a leader someplace. And even though it is not statutory or constitutional, that role falls to the majority leader and to a degree to the minority leader. Uh, I, when I was minority leader, same length of time as majority leader. But uh, as minority leader, there was a special opportunity to go over across the aisle to Mike Mansfield or later to Bob Bird and say, boys, look, I, I know what you're doing and I understand it. I'm even sympathetic, but that's not going to work. And as long as you had enough to stop it, meaning uh, at least 39 votes or uh, 44 votes, that you could stop it. So both leaders serve. Uh, have an important role. Let me let me say this self self serving statement, but recognizing the importance of both leaders, majority and minority. When I was first elected majority leader, at first went on the floor that day. The first thing I did was go over to Bob Bird, and I said, Bob, I will never know the rules and precedent of the Senate the way you do. But I'll make you a deal. I will never surprise you if you won't surprise me. He thought about it and said, let me think about it. <laughs> he came back later that afternoon and said, okay. And we never did. And I think that tradition has carried on. I think Dole uh, adopted that point of view as well. And it's a good, sound position, even if I did first advocate it because the, the system itself and the rules of the Senate are such that there's plenty room for disagreement, plenty room for controversy, and to do so within the framework of the organization without sneaking up on your adversary. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I clearly I think Dole learned some things from watching how you operated. So I wonder, did you learn some things from watching your father-in-law? Oh, I'm sure I did. Uh, he was a great man. He really, really was. 
Uh, and I'm sure I did, but I'd be hard put to. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one thing I would say about Dirk Sado that I have a great admiration for him. That relationship, though, between father-in-law and son-in-law was potentially very delicate. And I believe, I don't know, I haven't really run the records, I believe I may be the only person, was the only person in the Senate that Dirksen never asked to vote one way or the other. And I think that was in recognition of the sensitivity of that relationship. But we discussed freely, freely, and I saw it as advice, which he gave freely. But he never tried to convince me. I don't think it was rebellion on my part, but it was an assertion of independence anyway. And it worked very well. Well, then how does this contrast with the legend of Lyndon Johnson? <laughs> In the 50s. Yeah, well, it's kind of larger than uh, my arm twister. Well, that's, that's true. And all those things about Johnson are true, I'm sure. But it's interesting to me that Dirksen and Johnson were not only a one majority, one minority leader, but they were very close friends. And uh, I think that facilitated the uh, operation of the Congress, of the Senate. The fact that they would talk freely, and, and I'm sure agree and disagree freely, but uh, uh, what did I learn from Dirksen? I will choose one thing to tell you, Roger. I, I remember I was grumpy about some idea of foreign policy. I've forgotten what it was. And I also remember I was traveling with... Uh, uh, who was it? Abe Ribicoff, Senator Ribicoff, a Democrat, a very senior Democrat from Connecticut. We were traveling in the Middle East and we were in last at Egypt. And uh, we got on the plane, approached the plane, the press out there. And uh, I made some smart remark about some item of administration policy, and we got on the plane, uh, Rubikoff very quietly said, Howard, I've discovered over the years that if I save by criticism of the administration until I get home, that both I and the country are better off. And I've always remembered that, and I always followed that. But Dirksen, uh, in the same vein, and I, uh, Dirksen came to me one day and says, the president's arriving at Andrews, and I would like you to go with me to greet him. And I said, really, Senator, I don't want to do that. He said, well, you should. And I did. He said, notwithstanding our difficulties, the president is the embodiment of our national sovereignty, he's returning from overseas, and we should be there to express our support. Not of his issues necessarily or his positions, but of his role as president, or as Dirksen you say, as chief magistrate. <laughs> I love that expression. <laughs> Let me ask you something, I realize this is speculative, but the whole relationship between Dole and Richard Nixon. Yeah. 
which, which is clearly pivotal and which, which mystifies a lot of people, given, frankly, the way Dole was treated you know, after, after 72. And yet, and I've often wondered if, if there wasn't an element in their background that was common, that, 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 that Dole looked at Nixon and saw this scrappy um, kid who, who in some ways wasn't a natural, but who through sheer work and effort, um, you know, forced himself, trained himself to be what he wasn't. Um, obviously, economically overcame great odds. Whether, whether there was some kind of identification, cultural, you know, identification that he, that he had with Nixon. Uh, I'm sure he did. I never discussed that with Dole, but as you bring it up, I agree with every word you just said. And, you know, I, honestly, Dole and Nixon had that and other things in common. They are both and were, in Nixon's case, great patriots, you know. I must tell you that uh, I guess I was, I'm thought of as being instrumental in the downfall of Nixon because of my role on the Senate Watergate Committee. But the truth matter is I continue to have an admiration for Nixon as president. He, he was, in, in so many ways, he was a great, center of the road, even moderate president. But he made one fatal error, and it's by private theory that he didn't know a thing about that break-in before it occurred. But he found out about it within hours after it occurred. He was in California, so he was called. His fatal error was that when he came back, instead of liquidating that problem by lining up those folks and firing them on live television, he decided to contain it. And that, in that case, and I think in most cases, proves to be fatal. I don't know if Nixon ever thought those thoughts or not, but I bet he did. And it was a, it was a great loss. It really was. It was a great trauma to the country. We lost a great talent in Nixon. But it was the right result because he made a fatal political mistake. And as this unfolded, did you two and your colleagues have a sense of astonishment at, at that these revelations Kept coming. Oh, oh, daily. And, and, and Dole and I talked about that. You know, he, Dole was thought of as closer to Nixon than I ever was. And I can remember cloakroom conversations between us about that. And uh, the amazement of the things that came out. You were, you were both amazed. Yeah, we were both amazed. I'm sure he was. He said he was, and I believe him. And I know I was. But they just tumbled out one after the other and never ended. Oh, it was a terrible time. The tapes. Were you astonished when you heard that, that there was a taping system? You know, honestly, I wasn't. I think every president before him had had some sort of taping system. Kennedy did. Johnson did. Franklin Roosevelt did. No, I wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't outraged at that. Uh, no, no, I wasn't. 
But it proved to be the ultimate downfall of Richard Nixon. I, I was interested to see now that, uh, that uh, Ronald Reagan's diaries are being released, have been released. But I am astonished that Ronald Reagan kept that diary daily. And I saw those diaries. He never let me read them except one case. But those diaries were written in longhand in leather-bound books. They weren't loose-leaf books. They were leather-bound books. And there are rows and rows and dozens of them. And someday they'll all be published. And it must be the most important and thorough con contemporaneous record of a presidency that's ever existed. Among other things, it does give the lie to, to, to the notion that Reagan was either lazy or undisciplined, because he clearly was the opposite of both. Oh, he was the most disciplined person I ever knew. Really? He really was. He would show up every morning at 9 o'clock on the button in the Oval Office. When I was chief staff, I used to meet with him at 9 o'clock. And we would have... Uh, a meeting that lasted no more than 30 minutes. By the way, he would start each meeting with a funny little story. And it was a meeting or two before I realized that when he finished, he expected me to have a funny little story. But that was his stock and trade, and I, I treasured that. And Dole also had that same, has that same talent. You know, he can put things in perspective with humor more effectively than most philosophers can do it with serious dissertation. And I admire that. Do you think that's a real weapon in, in, in making the Senate work? A tool, not a weapon, a tool. A tool. Yeah. But it's valuable, it's extraordinarily valuable. And sometimes Dole may be criticized for a rapier-like wit. I don't think of it as a rapier-like wit. Maybe it was, but I think of it as a quick mind that was able to put things in perspective. And not everybody appreciated it, but if you think back on it, most of the, quote, rapier thrusts were right on the mark. He still has that sense of humor. And I've always sensed one thing he, 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 it sounds like a cliche, but I think it's true of Dole more than most people. He really never forgot where he came from. He still... At, at heart, he's still Russell, Kansas. And, That's right. And part of this, there's, there's an element of the populist in Dole. I mean, there's a real disdain for pomposity and stuffed shirts. And, I mean, that's bipartisan. Um, and the notion of, of the Gucci, you know, the loafers, yeah. the, you know, the lobbyists, right, and right, everyone right. who were. Who were um, the relationship with Reagan, because it'd be fascinating to know, because of course you were thinking about running at '88 yourself. That's right. And obviously, he put those plans on the shelf to become uh, chief of staff. And then you had this very unusual situation where the vice president is clearly running, and your Senate leader is running. How did the president handle that somewhat awkward? My recollection, my recollection, Richard, is that he didn't handle it at all. <laughs> he just let the chips fall where they would. Mm. He showed no preference. He showed no uh, priority between them. I admire that. He, you know, it was a delicate situation and an unusual one. 
But I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, he ever did anything about it. Certainly never talked to me about it. But your sense is he had a very good relationship with Dole. Oh, yeah. He had a great relationship with Dole. But I do remember the first time that uh, Dole came to a leadership meeting that before it started. I went down a little early, which he invited me to do. He asked about Dole. He did. I don't remember what I said, except it was favorable. But uh, he was curious about Dole. And as I recall, he's the only one he asked about. Really? It's, it's doubly interesting because, of course, the story in 76 was that one of the reasons Dole wound up being on the ticket was, you know, the, the people around Ford, at least, had been led to believe that he had Reagan's imprimatur. Yeah. Whether that was in fact true or not, but uh, I have an old friend in Tennessee who has a philosophical statement that I've come to admire. He called me the other day and said, "Howard, we've reached the age where most of the things we remember never happen. <laughs> <laughs> it is more often true than not." <laughs> it's been said. I've heard it said then in some ways it's more fun to be minority leader than majority leader. Now, don't you believe it. <laughs> no. I've been both, and majority is better. Minority leader is interesting, it's challenging. It may have fit Dole's personality better than majority leader. So. Well, it is, because he, he was able to crystallize an issue and formulate a position that... Uh, would go right to the heart of the issue. As majority leader, he had to take out a whole lot of different opinions by different people and to try to synthesize a point of view. But I must tell you, majority leader is the second best job in Washington. I said that to Ronald Reagan once. He said, no, Howard, it's the second best view in Washington. I said, Mr. President, I'm sure that's so in terms of historical standing, but look around. I got a nice office, I got a big staff, I got a car, I got access to an airplane, and I don't have Secret Service. And I still have a life of my own. And he thought from it and says, well, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I want to get back into the... the the, the first Reagan term, um, and which was, a, in many ways, a revolutionary period in this country. I mean, uh, almost a U-turn in a lot of ways in policy uh, and the whole relationship of government to the economy and, and the individual. Um, Dole was a good soldier uh, and apparently a very effective soldier, but he but he he couldn't have agreed with everything that he was being asked to. Uh, to implement, did he? I mean, I mean, balanced budgets are an almost spiritual <laughs> thing, <laughs> and I assume that's the result of where he came from that's and what he lived true. through. We're all right, 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 right. Of our... That's right. Oh, I'm sure that's true, but uh, um, the first thing you said that Doe was a good soldier is the most important part of this kind of part of the conversation because he was. I cannot tell you of a specific instance where he acted against his own native instincts, but I'm sure there were. 
I can tell you that uh, I never went to, when I was leader, I never went to Bob Dole to ask him to do something that I felt that he didn't want to do, that he didn't respond in the affirmative. He had a heavy understanding of the importance of his role as a senator, had a, a clear understanding of the relationship between the Senate and the President. He did not confuse the two. He knew of the separation of powers and the special responsibilities that each had. It's as if he had studied at length, and perhaps he had, how these relationships had existed in the past, imperfect as they were, and that he was determined to create a new relationship that would best serve the country. And I think he did that in large measure. And I think he served as a model for all of us. I know he served as a model to me in, uh, in establishing a, a willingness to talk to the White House, but without feeling that you were uh, in a subordinate role. Dole was never in a subordinate role. Dole was Dole, and nobody doubted that. Uh, but the implication is that by the Dole who's operating in 81, 82, 83 is, 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 is different from the freshman senator of 68, 69, 70. He was different, absolutely different. But that difference is uh, something that happens to all, I think, conscientious members of the Senate who are different after a month or a year or your first term. As you begin to understand the relationships and responsibilities, and when you're no longer overwhelmed by your own importance, I remember Norris Cotton in the Center of New Hampshire. It may have been my first day of the Senate, but I was go going into the I did go into the Senate chamber, and he was there to greet me, as were others. And he said, Howard, can you smell the marble? I said, Senator, I don't think so. I don't believe marble has a spell. He said, oh, yes, it does. And once you smell it, you'll be ruined for life. And I thought about that a lot. I don't think I ever spelled marble. And certainly Bob Dole never spelled marble. Conservatives don't like to hear the word grow. I mean, when the... <laughs> Because when they, you know, he grew in office, that means he moved left. Right. Can you explain uh, what what real growth is and why it does tend to no, I can't. Uh, terrify the right? I cannot. It, it varies from time to time. It's that old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But yeah. uh, eh, I don't think you necessarily grow to the right. Um, in my own case, I've Forgive me for bringing up my own experience, but in my own case, I think I grew to the left. Mm. Uh, not by design, but by force of circumstance. You know, the Panama Canal was a good example in my life career. I, I started out in the mainstream of Republican opposition to the Panama Canal Treaty. The more I thought about it, the more I was advised on it, studied it, the more I was convinced I was wrong and that I should support it, and I did. And for those who care to see, I'll show them the scars and bruises about my head and shoulders, but uh, 
I, uh, there's some who say I, there's some in Tennessee who still think I'm a Bolshevik. <laughs> I, they think I grew to. Well, that's that's what I mean. It, it, that growth <laughs> is always assumed to be kind of a co-opting by the left. That's right. And uh, Dole is certainly regarded as a Bolshevik by by some, you know, in the party. And of course, what does that say about where the party's gone in the last twenty-five years? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but I think the party is permanent. I think it is not about to collapse. I think its center of gravity will shift and change. Yeah. I think it's an essential part of our governing mechanism, and I think it's a it's it, it must endure. For example, you both came into this position. Dole strikes me like Gerald Ford as a kind of Midwest conservative whose conservatism in many ways is grounded in, in economics. Right. And who had a kind of healthy to me, healthy, you know, healthy skepticism <laughs> about what government could do, particularly overnight, to bring about the millennium. Um, and at the same time, a kind of healthy leave me alone. Right. Not not a libertarian, but but basically government should probably stay out of the classroom, out of the boardroom, out of the bedroom. That's you know, right. I, I don't want to, that's not for the public discourse. And yet clearly in, in your political career, that line has been crossed and, and conservatism was redefined. How uncomfortable, if at all, was that, was that process of having the social issues increasingly come to define conservatism? Well, it's certainly important to me. And I'm sure it was to Bob, is to Bob Doe. Uh, but the party has moved. The country has moved. And, uh, you know, we owe a responsibility to understand that and to respond to it, not necessarily to agree to it, but to understand it. You mentioned how it has moved. My dad was in the House for many years, and he was adamantly opposed to any sort of federal aid to education, either directly or by implication. Yeah, it's an article of faith that, you know, if you're in the House or Senate, you better get our share. And it's a big share anymore. So it's changed. But uh, change, once again, is one of the hallmarks of a vibrant economy and a vibrant democracy. And it will continue to change. I don't know how it's going to change. It may go forward or backward or sideways, but change is not a bad word, in my view at least. And it's inevitable, in my view, at least. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and in terms of parties themselves, I hear especially young people say, well, the Republicans are conservative, Democrats are liberal. The truth of the matter is they are neither, in my view. Their center of gravity will vary from time to time. Numerically, if nothing else, there'd be more liberals or conservatives or moderates in one party or the other. And those things will change. But the great center still runs America. And I don't think it's a mathematical center. I think, and I think Bob Dole understood this more than most anybody. It's not a mathematical center, but rather it's a, a, a consensus view that certain things are at the center of our political system.
And that's what should drive our determination of other more complex issues. There's a scene that, that I remember Don telling me about. Um, I think it involved you and Jesse Helms. It was a, <laughs> it was a vote. I mean, literally, Jesse's was the vote. Uh, and I think, I don't know whether it was Tefra, but it was one of those post-81 texts. I'll tell you, that Jesse Helms, or if you yep. want to hear that, sure. it may be the one that okay. he's talking about. <laughs> I remember, I guess in February of 81, the first serious challenge I had as the new majority leader of the United States said, the first is Bill Dolan, the first Republican leader since Bill Dolan of California. But the first challenge I had was when we had to vote on a debt limit increase. And I assumed that all oh, that would all go okay. But then as I began to count heads, I think it's Howard Green came to me and said, I don't believe you're going to win this. And I got a bunch of the freshman senators together in my office around the conference table, and we talked and carried on. And it was clear that I hadn't convinced anybody we were going to lose that thing. And I, the bells rang for a vote, and we all left my office and went up to the floor to vote. As I went out, I saw Jesse Helms, and I said, Jesse, I got a big problem. I don't think I'm going to get these new freshman senators to vote for this debt limit increase. And after we voted, he said, Howard, can I talk to him? And I said, well, of course you can talk to him. So he came back in. Jesse did. Jesse helps. And they were all gathered there. And uh, he said, gentlemen, I understand you're not going to vote for this debt limit increase. And he said, well, I understand that. And I understand many of you ran against it. And I want you to know I never voted for a debt limit increase. But I never before had Ronald Reagan as my president. And I'm going to do it, and so are you. And I got all of them but one. <laughs> <laughs> but that was repeated with Strom Thurmond, who did the same thing. But, uh, you know, the old heads, your earlier question, what effect did uh, senior service have on the new members? In that case, the ones with experience had a profound effect on the outcome of that vote. And without success in that vote, I don't know what our leadership would have been like. I remember asking George Mitchell if he could describe what it is, whatever quality or qualities Dole had that made him succeed um, in, in the leadership position. And he, and he said, it was a combination of things, but almost a sixth sense about what combination of personalities and legislative change. I mean, what, what mix would work? And it's, it's not something you can quantify. It's not something you can learn in a textbook. It well, not is, only that, it's not really an intellectual exercise. It's more an empathetic personality arrangement. You know, you sort of sense these things rather than hear them or understand them. You sort of guess, but if you guess right, you usually win. But uh, It's a uh, psychological gift. Right, and, it, and it's not based on a whip check necessarily. It's based on how you evaluate this person's basic views and beliefs and this prejudice and this oppositions. But that's the quality of leadership, and I think Dole had it in spades. 
But that suggests that you get to know all of your colleagues well, inside you gotta, out, or yeah, you got to know them. But it's more than that. I, you know, it's it's hard for me to tell you what I think about this. I don't think it's just knowing them. In some strange way, you've got to understand. You've got to be able to uh, anticipate what they're going to say on a particular issue. Maybe that's too ethereal for this circumstance, but that's what I think. <laughs> and that's not something you can teach in the classroom? No, it's not something you can emulate. It's either you got it and do it or you don't. Do you sense that he was impatient? No. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was impatient. He was ambitious. And he was uh, sometimes criticized for being overambitious. But I never thought that. I thought, you know. Dan Rostenkowski told me a story about how before the, uh, oh, gosh, before the budget talks, um, Bill Clinton, oh, no, no, the government shutdown, before the government shutdown. <laughs> The first government shut down. Yeah. Bill Clinton called him. And he said, okay, tell me, tell me something about Dole. He says, give me a leg up, you know, when we're, when we're negotiating. And he went on about what a great guy Dole was and so on and so on. But he said, but I tell you, he's the most impatient man on the planet. <laughs> and he says, there'll come a time when he, he, well, he'll be so desperate to get out of that room He'll just give you one of your books and walk away. Now, that may be an exaggeration, but uh, is, and yet, you know, that, that's the fascinating thing because that impatience that I saw, and yet, what you're talking about and what Senator Mitchell talked about requires an extraordinary amount of patience to not only to know not, people, but to, but to wait all night. Uh, you know, if that's what it takes to right. to bring these things together. Well, impatience is a tool in those arsenal, I think. I think it was in mine, but uh, uh, but uh, Noel was not arbitrary or capricious in his opposition. And had I been talking to Clinton about that, I would not. I would have said, look, you know, he's grounded in deep conviction on a variety of issues. And it'll take a lot to dislodge him from his point of view, but that he's a man who will listen. That's what I would have said. But uh, he was he was a tough adversary. Yeah. I was surprised, by the way, that he was elected as my successor. Tell me about that process. <laughs> um, hey, how, how early did you decide you weren't going to run? How, yeah, when did I decide? Right. Oh, I, I decided uh, two years, I guess, a year and a half before I... And, and what led you to... Why? Yeah. Well, I, I guess I always thought that being in the Congress was not a full-time, it was not a lifetime job. But really the most immediate thing was my wife then had terminal cancer, mm. and I had to take care of her. So I left. And I had no regrets about that. I will always be grateful for the 18 years I served the Senate, but I had no difficulty in leaving. Uh, but uh, the question of my successor came to be very interesting. I thought, I think most people thought, that Ted Stevens, who was my deputy, who was whip, would succeed. 
Some thought, no, it'll be Pete Domenici, and others thought this, that, the other. I don't think most anybody thought Bob Dole was going to be elected majority leader. May I ask why? No, I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, but that's what I think. And uh, I also remember, you know, I didn't vote. I wasn't going to be back, but I was there in my role as the city majority leader. And... <laughs> I remember John Tower was chairman of the policy committee and thus responsible for the election. And I remember when they announced the vote, and by only, I think, one vote or two votes that he was elected, John Tower leaned over to Howard Green and says, burn the ballots. <laughs> so nobody would ask for a recount. <laughs> but Doe was a fortunate choice. And I congratulated him then. I congratulate him now. He served with distinction. A couple quick things. Um, is the chief job of a majority leader persuasion? That's a combination of things. Certainly persuasion is part of it, but not the only part of it. Uh, it's too complex to define in a brief short time, but it's not just persuasion. You're part traffic cop. I mean, just well, basically. Well, that, yeah, no, you, you are, yeah. and that, that has great power. When somebody wants, especially with the younger members, want to get on the uh, agenda or want to get a particular point across, the majority leader has almost unchallenged authority to deal with that. I cannot remember a single time when I was majority leader that I set a schedule and anybody successfully challenged it. That's a powerful thing. And uh, that may be persuasion, it may be intimidation, but it's powerful. And it's more than just persuasion. But I'd say, again, yeah, majority leader is ill-defined, it's not constitutional, it's not statutory, but it's the second best job in Washington. When um, Dole was running for president, 88, and even more, say, later in, in 96, and decided, I think, wrenchingly to, to leave to leave the Senate. My, my hunch it was harder for him to go than it was for you to go. I think so, probably, yeah. yeah. Um, did he ask, you know, for advice? Did he... Uh, did he ask me for advice? Yeah. No. Uh, nor would I have volunteered advice. Everybody has to make that decision. That's a very personal decision. Nobody advised me, and I would not have advised Dole had he asked. One last question. Oh, hey. Hey, come on. Hey, how are you? Well, come on in. <laughs> yeah, come on in. Come on in. Come We're on, on our in. last question. Your timing is perfect. She knows how to bring up a meeting. <laughs> yeah, she does. How do you think? Big question. But, you know, um, say 10, 20 years from now, a generation that, that you know, for whom Bob Dole is, is a name in a, in a history book or... Um, how do you think Dole should be should be remembered? What's his What's his place Well, I think Dole. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a very good question, Richard. And, and I've given a little thought to that, not because I want to write the history book, but just because it's a natural thing to think about. And I think Dole will be remembered first as emblematic of World War II, and that he shed credit 
on those who survived the war and those who then went on to be of service in the country. That's no small achievement, and it's something to be remembered for. And as I drive by the new World War II Memorial, I thought about that the other day. He'll be remembered not just for these stones and pillars, which were richly deserved, but he'll be remembered as a legatee of that tradition. That's what he'd be remembered for. And that the generation that fought World War II came back and continued their service to the country in a variety of ways, including in the Senate. And Bob Dole is a good example of that. Not a bad way to be remembered. Um, off the record, or uh, well, <laughs> let me ask you one last question because I, I, I can't let you go without asking. I'm still working on this epic biography of Nelson Rockefeller. And two quick things. One, when he was vice president and got in trouble over the rules change. I mean, <laughs> yeah. were, you, were you there when Oh, yeah. When that, when that I happened? was certainly there. I mean, and what, how, how Well, he was in trouble more than once. Yeah. But you're probably talking about the time when he attempted to speak on the floor of the Senate. Oh, okay. No, no, I, that... Yeah, that's yeah. the first one I know about. Okay. Yeah. He came down to the vice president's chair and uh, uh, wanted to participate in the debate. And Bob, I mean, uh, Bob Bird had an absolute fit and said that's not the role of the vice president. While it's true that you're technically a member of the Senate, you have no right to speak. That's the first time. Yeah. Uh, I thought he, Bird was wrong, by the way, but... Uh, Anyway, so be it. What were, which one were you well, thinking the culture, about? Remember the, when culture was redefined, just yeah. 60 votes from, from the uh, from Right, the right, right, right. Which it, historically, that's a pretty, you know, people talk, they say he didn't do anything as vice president. If he'd done nothing other than rule on that, that's, that's a pretty significant uh, It thing. certainly is. It changed the very character of the Senate. Yeah. And, you know, it's still two-thirds on rule change. It's 60 on a legislative matter. And that was a grand compromise. And I was participating in that compromise. But uh, it was a significant change in the way the Senate operates. I don't know where that's going, by the way. That'll change again. Yeah. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know. I really don't. You think go back to two-thirds? Might. The board? But going back to two-thirds is easier than getting 60. You know, having to get 60 votes, absolutely, is more difficult than getting two-thirds of those present. But, so it may go back to that. 